If you would be turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, be spending most of our time in Matthew 27, about verse 45, and uh, also John chapter 19. We'll kind of be going back and forth there and, and referencing Mark and Luke as well. Uh, finished last week about uh, 9 a.m. Jesus was crucified, was put on the cross. The soldiers had uh, divided his garments. The multitudes were mocking him. And even the robbers, the one on either side of Jesus at first, both mocked Jesus as well. One had a change of heart. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what caused that. Uh, the timing, we don't know exactly the timing. P possibly it was after the darkness fell that one had a change of heart. But that's where we, we ended last week that one of the thieves uh, said to the uh, other, do you not even fear God? This is in Luke 23, verse 40. Uh, since we are under the same sense of condemnation, for we have suffered justly for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, talking about Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Asked Jesus to remember me, he said, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And of course, we talked about that some last week. A lot to be said about that. But I'll just make one more comment there. Is it shows that when a person passes from this physical life, doesn't cease to exist, does he? Then that verse tells us that, because he said, today you shall be with me in paradise. And certainly hanging on that cross wasn't paradise. That would be somewhere else. Matthew, Mark, and Luke <clears throat> all tell us it was about the sixth hour, be about noon, as we count time, till, till uh, the ninth hour, 3 p.m., that darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Luke says, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. We'll get to that in a moment. Matthew 27, verse 46, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, some thought that, that he was calling for Elijah, and they brought him uh, some sour wine to drink. Uh, a lot of conversation about exactly uh, what Jesus meant there, why have you forsaken me? But uh, just a little bit later, possibly just a few minutes after that, he would say, Father, I commit my spirit into your hands. So to me, that would say that, you know, Jesus hadn't lost his faith in the Father and that the Father would care for him. I, I think that probably was just another expression of the agony that he was suffering at that time. It's one of those things that uh, we can talk about for a long, long time, but we're going to have to kind of move on. There in John chapter 19, verse 28, it says, and After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. And that was Psalm 69 in verse 21. So we've seen all through uh, this process and, and all through the life of Christ, how time after time after time, he was fulfilling prophecy, uh, building uh, that evidence upon which we place our faith among other things. That's not the only kind of evidence. 
Yes. Right. Uh, let's see. Verse 46. Yes, I've, I've neglected 22 verse 1. Psalm 22 verse 1. That was Matthew 27, 46 was yet another prophecy. Sorry, I skipped by that one. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Appreciate you bringing that up. So, um, it says that this is Matthew 27 verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit uh, that's expressed in various ways. Mark says he breathed his last, and Luke said something similar. Um, John says, and therefore when Jesus had re received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his, his spirit. I believe it is Luke who tells us, Luke 23, 46, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I put First uh, Peter 5, verses 6 and 7 here. It's what, what it made me think of when he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. What better place, what safer place would there ever be for a child of God than in God's hands? That's what Peter says, Humble yourselves before God. Uh, well, and he talked about putting yourself in God's hands. He says, for he cares for you. And, apparent, and obviously, Jesus recognized that same thing, that that's the best place for the spirit of a, of a faithful child of God. It also tells us that uh, this is John, Matthew 27, verse 51. It says, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook with rocks were split, that there was an earthquake. Mark and Luke tell us the same thing, that the veil of the temple was torn. I uh, put here several passages of Scripture. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that, that the law was only a shadow of the good things to come. And we remember that the way the temple was arranged, you had the holy place and the most holy place, and the holy place was the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table for the showbread. And then there was a curtain that separated that from the most holy place. And there was the mercy seat, the cherubim. And only once a year, the uh, high priest would go into the most holy place just once a year and offer sacrifice for himself and for the people. So he interceded on behalf of the people in entering into the holy place that represented the very presence of God. But at this time, that, that curtain was torn. And uh, we, we look at uh, Hebrews chapter 6. I believe that's telling us that, that that was the end of the Levitical priesthood. There was no longer any need for that. Because now our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, he had no predecessor and no successor. He was a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Of course, that would be Jesus and Luke or Hebrews 6, verses 9 and 10, says that he entered within the veil. So he actually went to the true holy place into the real presence of God to sit at his right hand and be our intercessor uh, at that time. Uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 33 is another place that tells us that Jesus now is sitting at, at the right hand of God. So no longer needed that veil, that, that priesthood and that 
uh, system of laws was done away. Colossians 2 and verse 14 tells us it was nailed to the cross. So that is done away at, at that time. Any, any comments there? Matthew 27, verse 54. Now, remember we talked about any time there was a crucifixion, there would be Roman soldiers that would actually take care of performing the crucifixion, but they would be overseen by a centurion. And there was one here at this time, and he says, now the centurion and those who were with him uh, keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, so he had seen the, the darkness and he had seen the earthquake and all these things happening, says, became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. Uh, in Luke's account, he said he saw what had happened and began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Uh, I would just say one thing about he, when he said this was the Son of God, and of course we can understand why he would say that, I would change it and say, truly this is the Son of God, because Jesus' physical body died, but of course he <coughs> continued to be the Son of God, and, and of course three days would be raised. And uh, Luke tells us in Luke 23, 48, I guess the crowds, now these are all the crowds that had been mocking Jesus in various ways. But when he saw all these things happen, the crowds came, who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return beating their breasts, which I understand to be a, an expression of sadness and grief. So a lot of the multitude seems to have changed their attitude somewhat about Jesus as well as, as they saw all of these things happening. Back in Matthew 27, 55, that there were many, a number of the women who had followed from Galilee and been following Jesus uh, through the time of his ministry uh, were there uh, uh, seeing all these things happen as well. He mentions Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. I believe that is Salome. That would be the uh, mother of James and John were present there as well. Lesson that we've got to do lessons 11 and 12 here, so <laughs> we're going to move, move along pretty quickly. So then the Jews, this is John 19, verse 31, then the Jews, because of the day of the preparation, that would be the day before a Sabbath, and usually it would be in the afternoon of that day, he said, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs be broken, that they uh, might be taken away. So if they would break the legs of someone who was on a cross, that would deny them the ability to lift up and to breathe and would hasten their death. And of course, they, the, uh, the Jews had no qualms about crucifying an innocent man but they sure didn't want his body to be on the cross during the Sabbath and profane the Sabbath. Goes back to straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, doesn't it? Uh, that verse, by the way, uh, is one that if, if you ever research what day of the week was it Jesus was crucified, some say Friday, some say Thursday, some even say Wednesday, that's a critical verse in the study. We don't have time to delve into that today, but if you want to look into that sometimes, you'll run across John 19, verse 31, about it being the Sabbath being a high day. As I understand it, 
You had the Passover. The next day was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that was a Sabbath. Normally, when we think of Sabbath, we think of Saturday, and it was a weekly Sabbath. But on this week, apparently there were two Sabbaths. Sabbath just meaning a day of rest. But that's, that's a lot of study to get, and we won't go any further than that. You can research that on your own. Um, so they were going to break the, the legs of the, uh, those on the cross, the three, the two thieves, and of Jesus. But they found that Jesus was already dead, so they did not break his legs. This is John 19, verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water uh, came out. I just put a couple of passages here uh, in, in relating to the, the blood of Christ. Uh, in him we have redemption through his blood. So we, we see the blood shed here. Of course, Jesus, there had been the crown of thorns that would shed some blood. There had been the scourging would have shed some blood. But here on the cross as well when they pierced his side. So uh, that innocent blood is what paid uh, the ransom price so that we can have access to salvation. Of course, there's many other passages you can refer to as well. And of course, all these things about uh, no bones being broken fulfill prophecy, Exodus 12 and verse 46. Uh, the side being pierced, Zechariah 12 and verse 10. So we see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, almost in every few verses being fulfilled. It's, it's God's part of God's plan of salvation providing the evidence so that we can look at it and weigh it uh, fairly and come to the conclusion that, yes, this Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew 27, verse 57, And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also uh, became a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered that it be given. Uh, Mark tells us, that uh, this Joseph was a prominent member of the council. Luke tells us that, you know, it was the council that condemned Jesus to death. Luke tells us that this Joseph of Arimathea was there, but he had not consented. So it was not a unanimous uh, verdict when they convicted Jesus. There were some who, who didn't agree with that. And uh, Mark tells us that he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And you can understand that would, after all these things that had happened and the scourging and the crucifying, to go back to the, to the uh, Romans and ask for the body would take some courage. And also you might fear the Jews too. If, if, you, if they find out that uh, you're a disciple, you have some feelings for this Jesus whom they've crucified, then you could be in trouble. So it took courage to do that. Uh, John tells us that, um, well, let's back up. Uh, typically, when a person was crucified, it, sometimes it could take several days even for a person to die on the cross. And here it's only been six hours that Jesus was on the cross thereabouts. And so when Joseph asked for the body of Jesus, uh, Pilate wasn't sure that he said, wow, would he, be, would he be dead already? And so he called in the centurion. And, uh, and of course, the centurion confirmed that, yes, Jesus was dead. And so he, 
he gave the body to uh, Joseph. John tells us that Nicodemus joined him as well. John chapter 19 and verse uh, 39. said, so Nicodemus, who at first came to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings and with spices, and it is the, the burial custom of the Jews. Uh, so they, they were given the body of Jesus, they wrapped it, and then beginning in, in Matthew 27, 59, and John 19, we see that uh, they, they took the body uh, and put it in Joseph's own new tomb, and we're told that it was a, a tomb hewn out of rock, and that nobody, no one had ever been in this tomb before. Um, John tells us that this tomb, it says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet lain. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So this is the afternoon, probably late afternoon, just before uh, the Jews considered sundown to be the beginning of the next day. So sundown would be the Sabbath. So you wouldn't want to, you couldn't be rolling away this big heavy rock and carrying bodies and things like that on the Sabbath. So they, they chose this grave that was close by so that they could get this done before the beginning of, of the Sabbath. We uh, find out that Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, and uh, was also there and so that they could see where the body was laying because later they would want to come back with the spices and so forth. So they would need to know where Jesus was buried. So apparently they followed uh, Joseph and Nicodemus so that they would know where the tomb was. Matthew tells us that uh, the next day, so this would be on the Sabbath, the day after the preparation, Matthew 27, verse 62, that the chief priests and the Pharisees went to uh, went to Pilate and they said, you know, this deceiver, talking about Jesus, said he was going to be raised in three days. So what we want to do is make sure that doesn't happen. We want to guard this tomb because we're afraid they'll come and steal away the body and then claim that he was raised and we don't want that to happen. So uh, Pilate allowed them to, I guess, gave him some, some Roman soldiers to be uh, placed at the tomb to stand guard there and they put a seal on the tomb to make sure that nobody was going to come and steal that body away. Luke tells us, Luke 23, 56, that so they were, after they had watched and seen where Jesus was buried, that they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So they didn't go immediately to place the, the uh, spices on the body because they would have to roll away that stone. It was a Sabbath. You couldn't do that on the Sabbath. So they were going to wait till after the Sabbath then to take care of that. Matthew 28 and verse 1 and John 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb and while it was still dark and saw the stone already rolled away. And... Uh, I think there were, there were others, too, that had come. Uh, Mark tells us Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, and several of them that had, had brought the spices and found that the, uh, that the, the uh, 
stone had already been rolled away. They were wondering how they were going to move that heavy stone themselves, but uh, it had already been rolled away. And John says that uh, she ran and came to Simon Peter to tell him uh, what had happened, that uh, she had gone to the grave, uh, but uh, the stone was already rolled away and the body's not there. Luke says uh, when they relayed this to the apostles that uh, these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe. And uh, might just say at this point that they, they, all the comings and goings to the grave, it happened with several people at different times and it, it gets a little bit confusing to put all of it in chronological order, but we won't take the time to try to unravel all that. We just understand that there were several people that went to the grave and would go back and report it and uh, would see that the body was gone. And they haven't seen Jesus yet, but they know that the body is missing. So when Mary went back and told Peter, John tells us that Peter and the other disciple, that would be probably John, ran to the tomb. And John apparently was a faster runner and got there first. And he stopped and looked in and saw that the tomb was empty. Then Peter arrived, and Peter being Peter, ran, went, went ahead and went into the tomb. And what he found was all the linen wrappings and everything all folded up in a very neat uh, way. So what, what that would suggest to you is that someone hadn't stolen the body. Why they wouldn't take time to fold everything up and make sure everything was nice and neat if someone had come and stolen the body. And John 23 and verse 8 says, And the other disciple, probably John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. Apparently John was the first one to connect the dots. He sees the tomb is empty. Surely he must have remembered the things at that point that Jesus had told them about being raised the third day, and he began to connect the dots that Jesus indeed has been raised from the dead. Next verse, John 20 and verse 10 tells us that then they, they left the tomb and went back, it says, to their home, apparently somewhere back around Jerusalem someplace, probably staying in another disciple's home, something like that. I don't, as far as I know, they didn't have any of their own homes in Jerusalem, but probably stay where they had been staying for a while with, with someone else. But uh, apparently Mary had followed them when, when James, uh, Peter and John went to the tomb uh, because uh, John 20 and verse 12 and 13 says, in, or verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus was lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, Because they've taken my, away my Lord, and I do not know where they've taken him. So then uh, Jesus was actually appeared there and spoke to her and said, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried them away, tell me where you have laid him, and, and I will take him away. And then he called her by name, and when he did that, she recognized who he was. 
And, she, and Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to the Father and your Father and to my God and your God. A lot of discussion been about uh, what he meant by stop clinging to me. And uh, we can't resolve all of this here and now. But personally, I just take it. He, he's saying, uh, don't stay here clinging to me. You need to go tell everybody else what you've seen, that, I, that I've risen. And I, I, I don't make too much about the not clinging to and not touching because later, uh, Matthew 28, verses 9 and 10, there, these other ladies were returning from the tomb. And they uh, says that they uh, took hold of his feet and worshipped him, but he didn't say anything about not touching him there. And a little bit later, he would appear to all of the apostles, and he would tell them to touch him. He said, I want you to touch me so that you can see I'm a human body and I've been raised from the dead. So I don't make too much of him saying to Mary Magdalene, don't, don't cling to me other than you just need to get back and tell other people. But uh, you may have other... Uh, opinions about that, but we'll we'll need to to move on, and so they go back and report it uh, to the apostles. Matthew tells us at that point, Matthew 20 verses 11 and 15, about uh, some of the guards came to the city to report to the chief priest uh, that the body was was gone now, and. Uh, they, they told they gave them some money to tell a lie to say that some of the disciples had come and stolen the body away. And he says that that saying has been around on, for a long time now that that's what happened. But of course, there was lots of proof that Jesus was raised. Luke tells us, Luke 24 and verse 13 through 32, that there were two disciples. One name was Cleopas. We don't know for sure who the other one was. And this is uh, on the first day of the week, that uh, they were traveling to Emmaus, and Jesus joined them on the way and asked them what, and they, of course, they were talking about all these things that had been happening. And uh, so G Jesus was asking them, what are you talking about? And they were amazed, you know, where have you been? Don't you know what has been happening? How that this Jesus, the Nazarene, was, was crucified, who was a, a mighty prophet in, in word and deed? and in the sight of all the people, and how the chief priest had sent us into death. And verse 21 says, but, but we were hoping that he who was going to redeem Israel, indeed, besides all this, it is the, uh, the third day since these things happened. And that's another verse, if you're trying to figure out what day it was that Jesus was crucified, this would be the first day of the week. And they said it's the third day since Jesus was crucified which would seem to say that Sunday, Saturday, Friday, three days since, so it would seem to say Thursday, but some people say otherwise. Uh, to us, it, it doesn't matter that much. It's uh, that Jesus shed his innocent blood is, is the important thing. Verse 25 says, And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe. Now these are two men walking to Emmaus. And all that the prophets have spoken, you'd be slow to, to comprehend all of this. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the, the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself 
and all the scriptures in it. Uh, so he used the scriptures here to teach these men. See, they, they hadn't connected the dots. They hadn't uh, recognized how that Jesus had fulfilled. And so he used the scriptures, be the Old Testament scriptures, right? To prove to them that this Jesus who was crucified was the Christ. Now, that pattern was followed by the apostles and other preachers after that, right? What did, what did Peter do on the day of Pentecost? He started out with what? Prophecies, wasn't it? Prophecy after prophecy. So Peter in the first gospel sermon did exactly what Jesus did here using the Old Testament prophecies to show that this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you've crucified, he said, was the Christ. Uh, I thought about Acts chapter 8 when Philip was preaching to the eunuch. It tells us simply that he preached Jesus, but before that, what scripture did he go to to preach Jesus? Isaiah 58, or 53 rather, Isaiah 53. And he says that that scripture he began to preach Jesus. So he did the same thing that Jesus did here on the road to Emmaus. In Acts chapter 18, there in verse 28, Apollos, Apollos had gone over to Achaia to preach. And it says, uh, he powerfully refuted the Jews in the public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So I just say that to say that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, are, are powerful proof. When we, when we go to teaching someone, if you're talking to someone who, who has never obeyed the gospel and perhaps is not even familiar with, this, with the Bible, and you want to convince them that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, where do you start? Probably the best way to place to start is back with the Old Testament scriptures and build, build it up. Just use, use the same format that Jesus used when he was talking to these uh, two disciples on the way to Emmaus. Verse uh, 28, this is Luke chapter 24. And as they approached the village where they were going, uh, he, that is Jesus, acted as though he were going further, but they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And so he went in to stay with them, and while they reclined at the table with him, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and been giving it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. So they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scripture to us. And verse 34, and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them. So uh, Emmaus, as I understand it, was about seven miles away. And so by the time they return, it's getting kind of late into the evening by now, perhaps it was already dark. And they said to them, the Lord has, has really risen and has appeared to Simon. Now, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 5 tells us that Jesus had appeared to Simon as well. Uh, but that actually event is not recorded. We don't know exactly when that was or where it was that Jesus had appeared to Simon. But by the time these two men got back to Jerusalem, 
and, and joined the apostles there. Uh, Jesus had already previous to that had appeared uh, to the apostle Peter. And then they began to relate their own experiences on the road, uh, how he was, he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. Verse 36 says, And while they were telling these things, he himself, that is Jesus, stood in their midst. And they were all, all startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why, why, do, you, why do you have doubts arise in your hearts? And here he says, uh, see my hands and my feet, that is, I myself touch me and see, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So he was proving to them beyond any shadow of a doubt. See, all of the apostles, to be an apostle, you had to be what? Among several things. It had to be one that was with Jesus at the time he was on earth. But there was another, another requirement to be an apostle. What was that? Be an eyewitness, right? Had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. So now they are eyewitnesses. They see Jesus. They touched him. He's real. They can see the nail prints in his hands and his feet. They are eyewitnesses now. So they can go preach the gospel, and it's not hearsay. They can't say, well, you know, I, 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 know a, I have a friend that's got a long-lost cousin that thinks he tells he's something. No, they can say... I'm an eyewitness. I was there. I touched him. I saw him. I talked with him. And we'll see later they ate a meal with him too as well. And so they are eyewitnesses. Uh, but at this time, there was one of the apostles that was missing. And of course, you know, that was Thomas. So they went and told Thomas what had happened here. John 20 and verse 25 so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the, in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He says, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it with my own eyes. And of course, it was uh, eight days later, John 20 and verse 26, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them this time. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Now, uh, apparently he miraculously entered this room where they were, said the doors were shut. Uh, and when uh, then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. You wouldn't say that to any other mere human being, would you? My Lord and my God. You remember when in the book of Revelation, angels were talking to John and twice he attempted to worship them. What did, what did the angel say? Don't worship me, you worship God. Well, here Thomas said, my Lord and my God, and Jesus didn't rebuke him for that. Important lesson there. Verse 29 is also an important verse. It says, and Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you believe. In, my, in the New American Standard, there's a question mark here. He said, you, and, and he's saying, you only believe because you've seen me? 
You didn't weigh all the evidence and you didn't figure this. It's only because you've seen me. Then he said, blessed. See that Jesus is going to talk about you here. Do you know that? When Jesus, before he ascended back to heaven, he talked about you. And he did it right here in this verse. He says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. See, you have looked at all that. It's 2,000 years since then. You can't see Jesus and, and see the nail prints and the place in his side. But you can weigh the evidence. And it seems that he's telling Thomas here, you know, you should have been able to see this. You should have been able to see all of the evidence and figure this out without having to physically see me. And blessed are those people that are able to do that. And here 2,000 years later, we can do that. John 21 in verse 1, And after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Galilee. You know, earlier when the women were at the tomb and the angels told them to go back and tell the apostles, he had also told them to tell the apostles that to go to Galilee, that Jesus was going to, going to meet them there. And here we see that that's exactly what's happened. He, he manifested himself or appeared again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And it names seven of the disciples there, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathan, uh, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others of the disciples, which he doesn't name. Uh, and uh, they were, uh, I guess, just making use of the time. They were going to go fishing, and they hadn't caught anything, and Jesus appeared on the shore. Did you caught anything? His nose had put the, put the net out on the other side, and they did, and they brought in a lot of fish. And, and therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So it was John was the first one to recognize who that was. And so Peter jumps out of the boat and, and, and goes to the shore there. And Jesus said, come and have some breakfast. Apparently ate a meal with them. And verse 14 says, now this is the third time that Jesus was manifest to the disciples. So there was the two times, one time that Thomas was not there, the time that Thomas was there. And this will be the third time that he appeared to, to the group of them. Now this John 21, the beginning verse 15, is a familiar happening here where Jesus says to Simon, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lamb. So he says that three times. The first two times Jesus used the word, the agape word for love. But Peter always responded with the phileo, which is a more of a tender affection kind of a love. The agape is more of a, um, it's a sacrificial uh, love. It's the same word that's used when he said you'd love your enemies. And the third time they both used the phileo. And a lot can be made of that. And I, and I don't want to dismiss it. A lot of sermons could be preached on that. But the thing that jumped out at me all three times after Peter said, yes, Lord, I, I, I love you. You know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. Now, remember, agape love is when you, you do good for somebody, whether they deserve it or not. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. You remember back in Luke 22, 
when Jesus had told Peter how he was going to deny him three times and how the devil had, had wanted to sift him like wheat. And he said, I've prayed for you. And he said this to Peter, once you have turned, you know, this is after the denials now, once you have turned, strengthen your brethren. That's what he told Peter. Did Peter do that? I think he did, didn't he? Because we know how Peter turned. In fact, he, as far as we know, preached the first gospel sermon. So what I got out of this conversation with Peter was this. Now, Peter, you say you love me. If you do, tend my sheep. That's the most important thing that you can do. And we know absolutely that Peter did do that. In the 1 Corinthians 15, again, it tells us that there was at some point in time, we're not don't know exactly when it was that Jesus appeared to 500 brethren at one time and also there was a time that he appeared to James. Matthew 28 verse 16, the Great Commission, he was in Galilee when he said these things. I've been given authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Uh, the accounts in, in Mark and Luke, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't think these are the same events. They spoke similar things, but I think at different times and maybe at different places. The reason I say that is if we look at Luke's account, he says, uh, I'm going to look at Luke 24, and about verse 47, well, let's look at 46. He said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city. We see from Acts 1 and verse 4, that would be Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And, and while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So they were close to Bethany. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, when Luke recounts these events, in verse 12, he said, Then they returned unto Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which was from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Uh, put a little map there. You see Bethany on the right of that map, and the Mount of Olives is between Bethany and Jerusalem. And so apparently, according to Luke, not apparently, but according to Luke, uh, when he ascended back to heaven, it was from the Mount of Olives here near, near Bethany. So... Uh, in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we see that it was 40 days that Jesus was on the earth after his resurrection. What happened 10 days later? Day of Pentecost, right? So uh, our time is up. Let me just, in this study, of course, was about the life of Jesus here on the earth and what everything was working towards was these events that we've just been talking about this morning his death, burial, and resurrection, the shedding of that innocent blood that pays the ransom price that makes salvation possible. Now, God had done a lot previous to that in his plan to save us, right? 
calling of Abraham, the giving of the law, all of the prophecies, all of these things were part of God's plan of salvation. But the shedding of the innocent blood is what made everything else worthwhile. If that hadn't happened, all of the other prophecies would have been uh, fruitless. They couldn't have accomplished salvation without the shedding of the blood. But even at that, that's not the end of God's plan of salvation, is it? Because uh, Romans 1 and verse 16 says the power, the, the, the gospel is God's power to save to those that believe. So now Jesus is risen from the dead. He shed his innocent blood, but now people have to know about it, right? And therefore, that's why the Great Commission go to all the world and preach the gospel so that people can, can know and see the evidence and weigh the evidence and believe and have salvation in Jesus Christ. Any, any comments? I know we've gone very quickly this morning. and apologize for that. We had to cover a lot of territory there. I want to thank you for uh, putting up with me this, uh, <laughs> this quarter. And I really do appreciate you being here and joining in the Bible study and all of you who've made comments. And I wish we'd had a little more time to hear more of your comments. But anyway, thank you. Thank you much for joining in, in the Bible study.